Welcome to Reading the Art World. I'm Megan Fox Kelly. Jazz plays its role in his work when it's not about jazz. I mean, issues of rhythm are very important to him. Issues of a comprehensive conversation that call and response very much if you look at the photographs carefully no matter what the subject is you'll very often find a call and response and you'll Mm -hmm. find a moment that feels jazz-like when it's not jazz-like Welcome to season two of Reading the Art World, a live interview and podcast series with leading art world authors and editors of new books about art, design, artists, museums, and the art market. I'm Megan Fox Kelly, art advisor and president of the Association of Professional Art Advisors. As an avid reader, I'm excited to present this series of talks with the minds behind insightful new publications that contribute to how we experience art and see the art world. I am so pleased to introduce my guest today, curator, scholar, author, and my friend, Ruth Fine, whose latest book, Frank Stewart's Nexus, published this month by Rizzoli, is the subject of our conversation today. It accompanies the exhibition of Stewart's work that will open in June at the Phillips Collection in Washington, DC, then travel to the Baker Museum in Naples, Florida, and the Telfair Museums in Savannah, Georgia through 2024. I'm personally very pleased to have Ruth join me on our podcast today because it was Ruth who gave me my start in my career in the art world. Ruth hired me to work at the National Gallery of Art right after graduate school, when I thought I knew lots, but probably knew next to nothing. And she generously guided me through the curatorial department of prints and drawings, which then allowed me to experience four glorious years at the National Gallery an experience that still informs my work today. So thank you, Ruth, for that. And thank you for joining me on this podcast. I'm delighted to join you. And I was delighted to have you at the National Gallery (laughs) a few years ago, to work with you at the National Gallery a few years ago. Let's say it was just a few years ago, wasn't it? Not a (laughs) hundred. So Ruth, it's hard to summarize your countless projects, your exhibitions and books, but here's a start if you'll bear with me. Between 1972 and 2012, Ruth was first curator of modern prints and drawings and later curator of special projects in modern art at the National Gallery of Art, Washington. Ruth's exhibitions and projects at the NGA are Legion, Romare Bearden, Helen Frankenthaler, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, John Marin, Georgia O'Keeffe, Crown Point Press, Gemini GEL, Graphic Studio, and the collections of Lessing J. Rosenwald, and Dorothy and Herbert Vogel. Ruth has written for exhibition catalogs for Mel Bachner, Richard Diebenkorn, Robert Rauschenberg, James Rosenquist, James McNeil Whistler, and about Tyler Graphics and the Brandywine Print Workshop, among so many others. Ruth coordinated the 1994 catalog resume of Roy Lichtenstein's prints, was co-coordinator of the 1999 Georgia O'Keeffe catalog resume, and she oversaw the Dorothy and Herbert Vogel collection, 50 Works for 50 States Project. Ruth is now based in Philadelphia and is currently working on research on Jasper John's personal archive of proofs for his prints. Ruth is now based in Philadelphia, is chair of the Roy Lichtenstein Foundation, and is working with the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation 
on a print distribution project. Ruth, thank you for joining me today. It's my great pleasure. I'm happy to be with you always. Thank you. So Ruth, you met Frank Stewart through your work with Romare Bearden, the book and the exhibition you did in 2003. Stewart first became the assistant and photographer to Romare Bearden in 1975 while finishing up the David Driscoll documentary, Two Centuries of Black American Art. Is that how you two came together through Romare Bearden? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I met uh, Frank Stewart when I was doing research for my Romare Bearden exhibition at the National Gallery. That was about 2000, I would say the year 2000, maybe 1999. He had worked with Bearden in many capacities um, for the last 13 years of his life. He met him, as you said, on the David Driscoll Project. He photographed Bearden's art. He drove Bearden to various places he went. He went with him to the Caribbean. So he knew Bearden immensely. He never studied with him per se, but they were so close in time that he was observant of Bearden uh, throughout that period of his life. And he had just gotten out of Cooper Union. So he was a very young man uh, at that moment. And we did an exhibition called Romare Bearden, photographs of Romare Bearden by Frank Stewart that came out at the time the Bearden exhibition was on view. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful book filled with Bearden uh, at work and at play and in the ocean and um, in St. Martin and in Staten Island and on Canal Street. It was it was terrific. And I love the photographs. And Frank and I stayed in touch from that point on. He, having stopped working with Bearden, shortly thereafter got involved with working with Wynton Marsalis and the Marsalis Septet mm-hmm. and then was the lead photographer for Jazz at Lincoln Center for 30 years, really up until COVID changed the way they functioned. And also as the photographer for the Savannah Music Festival. And and we just stayed in touch. We traveled to Cuba a couple of times together. And so I would say we were never out of touch from when we met in 2000 Mm -hmm. until, until the present time. And so did he come to you when he was working on this book? How did the book come about? The Nexus book came about because of organizing the exhibition, Frank Stewart's Mm -hmm. Nexus, An American Photographer's Journey, 1960s to the Present is the full title. And I had wanted to do a retrospective of his work for many years, because what he's best known for are his jazz photographs. But he started going to Africa when he was a student in the early 1970s, and he went to Cuba in the middle 1970s as one of a group of photographers had spent a month on the island learning everything that was to be learned about life there or everything that was possible within the space of a month. And I felt that it was important that these other aspects of his work got known, one of which was the fact that when he was traveling around the world with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, He really had to think about things in a different way because his initial intentions as a photographer in going to Africa and Cuba was very much to discover as much as he could about his African-American roots. And so his his range as a photographer is much greater than I think people are aware. I had done a show of his 
jazz photographs only for the Harvard Cooper Gallery in the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And out of that, I think we already were working on the retrospective, but kind of being involved with the work that closely really pushed that forward. Right. The book opens with a poem by Wynton Marsalis for Frank Stewart, which if read aloud, and I did read it aloud because I was reading it in my head, and then I thought, no, I'm going to read this out loud. Mm -hmm. It sounds just like jazz. Yeah. It's a beautiful poem. And I know that everything is not, you know, in Frank's work is not about jazz. And that's what's wonderful about this book is that it does reveal so many other aspects of, of his life, how his life informed his work, his travels, and how they informed his work. And after the Wynton Marsalis poem is a text about Stewart's work with you and the poet Fred Moten, but it's your interview with Frank Stewart that I most want to focus on today with you. I'm interviewing you about your interview, Ruth. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, you begin with his childhood in Nashville, then Memphis and Chicago. You get him to tell the story of his life, which he does so beautifully and creates these wonderful little vignettes in the stories that he tells along the way, stories that illustrate his life, even without photos or pictures. It's like he tells his story in pictures in the same way that his photos themselves tell stories. The stories he tells, he he tells to you with such brevity and clarity that they bring up images, almost as if in the telling of the stories, you see one of his photographs like envisioning the black and white car with the white interior that he talks about belonging to his mother Mm -hmm. and her pointing out to Frank, his estranged father who approaches the car smiling at Frank. And I see that story as if it's one of his black and white photographs. And there's so many wonderful stories that he tells throughout your interview with him that make his life come alive and then make his images come alive. Well, he's a very, I would say, acute storyteller and believes in being a storyteller. And he always talked about how he and Bearden got along so well because they both had roots in the South and Southerners are great storytellers. That's great. So the interview in the book is really a combination of talking for years in a way. It wasn't one sit down and do an interview. But whenever I would be with him looking at work, going to collectors with him, we would just be talking and I would be taking notes. And then that mm. got kind of put together as the interview. But he is a, he is a marvelous storyteller. But jazz plays its role in his work when it's not about jazz. I mean, issues of rhythm are very important to him. Issues of a comprehensive conversation that call and response very much, if you look at the photographs carefully, no matter what the subject is, you'll very often find a call and response and you'll Mm -hmm. find a moment that feels jazz-like when it's not jazz-like. But he was involved with the jazz world from very early. His stepfather was a renowned musician, Phineas Newborn Jr., and he used to go to jazz clubs with him when he was, you know, seven, eight years old when he was Mm -hmm. with his mother in New York. His mother was in New York, his father was in Chicago, and his grandmother and great-grandmother were in Memphis. And so as a young boy into teenager, really, 
he was dividing time between Memphis and New York and Chicago. You describe, and he describes a rather peripatetic, almost nomadic childhood moving from relative to relatives, but that he says that once he finished school, he was sort of used to being on the road and that used to being on the road then kind of folded into the role he played and the experiences he had with jazz at Lincoln Center. He was used to being on the road. And on his own, he's used to being on the road. You know, Mm -hmm. his most recent work is paying attention to issues of the environment and The real focus on that started when he went to New Orleans within days of the end of Hurricane Katrina, the end of the rain. Mm -hmm. And going back there for three years, 205, 206, 207, and capturing what was happening there, the flooding and then the damage and then the disappearance of dozens of Black churches. And he has done work on the islands off of the Southeast Coast, and he's driven out to California, not to capture the fires so much, but the aftermath of the fires. He's less involved with the devastation as it's happening than the results of the devastation. And he's wonderful at talking with people, just as he obviously became very intimate with all of the musicians because they traveled together constantly. But when he goes to speak with people in California or people in New Orleans or people on the islands, he, he gets their confidence because he's such a, he's, he's truly interested in all of this. And I think it's clear to the people that he is speaking to that, that he does care about them. Mm-hmm. And it's his caring about people that is so important. He's, he's known as well for his um, barbecue and his gumbo. He's a great chef, and that also endears him to people. He often will carry gumbo halfway across the country to share with people who he knows will will like his gumbo. And when he travels, people know he's a great barbecue cook. So he'll be in Savannah, and various friends in Savannah will get the ribs, and Frank will be on the grill. And, um, you know, he does it in traditional ways. With the same care he does with his photography, you know, every meal is a unique experience. And Mm -hmm. he really believes that each photograph is a unique experience so that when he himself prints something, his time in the darkroom is very precious so that he can have each one become exactly what he wants it to be. And when color photographs are printed in a lab, that same care goes into his oversight with the people who are doing the action. In the lab. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about his process, Ruth, because in your many, many years as curator and your own knowledge and experience about the making of prints. You've always been interested in how artists make their prints, their watercolors, collages, paintings, what have you. More than other curators, I think, process, the artist process has always informed your looking and your thinking and your writing about an artist. From my talking with you, from what I read about your writings, it's really essential to you as a curator. And I think about what you wrote recently for the Jasper Johns retrospective about Johns's printmaking process, how essential that was to peeling back the layers of his imagery and to give people new access, new understanding of his prints and of him as an artist. 
And you do it with Frank Stewart, too, in the interviews. You ask about his cameras, his lenses, his uses of color, his uses of different films. And as you just said now, his ways of being in the darkroom and his care in his printmaking. And even if he's overseeing a commercial printer, print his color photographs. So did the questions about his process reveal something about him as an artist to you as it has in the past for other artists, your understanding of his process? How much was that a part of your understanding of his work as an artist? Oh, I think it was of great importance to me. You know, my own interest probably has its source in the fact that I taught at college level for 10 years before I became a curator. And I have continued working in the 40, 50 years since then, although kind of underground because I didn't feel it was appropriate for a curator at the National Gallery to be an artist out in the world. And so mm-hmm. it's been my secret life. But I am interested in how objects are made and how artists think about how they're made. And I think Frank's thinking is very distinctive in this sense of believing that each print of each image is its own object. Uh, You know, that's John Zian as well, change change everything. And so there are links there for sure. But also his thinking about the same image being at various sizes and what images are best at larger sizes, but he's happy with them at smaller sizes. They say something else to him when they're a smaller size as photographic technology developed. And uh, he moved from silver gelatin to inkjet printing, you know, very different. We have one image in the exhibition that is there in both a silver gelatin and uh, inkjet print, and how his thinking evolves as the processes evolve and, and what's possible. You know, I mean, it is true that it can be difficult to get the materials today that you could get 40 years ago. It's really true. And they look so different. The The end result is so different. Yeah. yeah. But that interests him. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you could see it as a problem. And in other ways, you can see it as an advantage, as another way of thinking about your work. And that aspect of his thought process is something that is very interesting to me. Yeah. And the different cameras and working in black and white and color Mm -hmm. and how different effects can come in color photography, the use of color gels and, you know, working in a studio setting or working outdoors. A lot of the later work are objects that he calls drawings and they're very much, um, you know, be on the street and capture it. He makes use of the possibilities of stage lighting and the dramatic effects that they offer. But he's also very happy to be out on the street and capture the light effects that happen because of natural light, because of reflections from natural light. What what a difference it makes if you shoot a photograph off of the, the flashbulb from another photographer's camera, which happens in a few instances in photographs in the show. So all all of these technical things matter to him. He's very smart about them. Mm -hmm. He's very smart about the history of photography. I mean, certainly Cartier-Bresson is an image and he cites him as an image. There's one of the photographs as an homage to Cartier-Bresson and very influenced by uh, Roy de Carava, who Mm -hmm. introduced him really to 
the beauty of African-American life in photography and also the beauty of the tonalities in um, in gel and silver printing. And also he spent a summer studying with Gary Winogrand in Chicago when he was a student. And so the range of what's possible in photography as subject was something that Gary Winogrand helped him understand. And, you know, very much the notion of standing on the shoulders of our forefathers, but giving our followers something to stand on our shoulders about, I think. Exactly. Yeah, and he he talks about the influence of those photographers. I think the one of the aspects that was curious to me was, well, first of all, the influence not only of photographers, but also the influence of other artists, particularly painters. And so there was one critic who compared his photograph, uh, Winton Mutes, which is a black and white still life uh, photograph of mutes for Winton Marsalis's horns. And he compared that photograph to the Italian painter Giorgio Morandi. And, you know, as soon as you look at the photograph, you say, of course, yes, I see that. And and yet Stuart cites in his conversation with you references to a wide range of painters, including Daumier, Goya, Van Gogh, Pollock, Gorky, Bearden, and others have referred to the abstractions of uh, the abstract painters of Sam Gilliam. Mm-hmm. And so... Then I start looking for those artists, you know, as I as I'm going through the book. So it's interesting. Is he thinking about those artists when he's making photographs? Is it that their their images are simply embedded in him as an artist and they become a part of his eye? How do you think that those painters influence his work? I think it's part of his uh, M.O. in a sense. I don't think he's thinking about them as he's working. I think he's looked at them. He goes to museums. He travels mm-hmm. a lot. So he has opportunities to go to museums and galleries. And so it's part of him. Certainly with the Amitsu Cartier-Bresson in the book, he saw a site that absolutely reminded him of a very well-known Cartier-Bresson photograph. And right. sure took it for that reason. Uh, but I, that, I don't think in the relationship between painters, there's anything that direct. Of course, Robert Frank was another person sure. influential and interesting to him and important to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a vast range, but you know, that's true with many artists. Mm-hmm. I think we often try to categorize what interests artists by what you see in the work per se, but there's so much more behind it. Artists will have very varied collections. I mean, Frank Stewart has a, a very varied collection of other artists' work also. And, oh, he uh, does. Uh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and of African sculpture. Uh, but, you know, he has a Jack Whitten and he has Bearden and he has uh, two sculptures of his own and that he did as a student that one really is an homage to African art and the other is an homage to Picasso. And that's clearly oh, that's interesting. Are. So I think it's just his looking. And, you know, he'll when he goes in someplace, he wants to see what's on the walls. Uh, he has a great, a, a terrific library as well with, oh. with books that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in his library based on knowing what you know about his work. So he's he's a reader, he's a thinker, he's a looker in very profound ways. And I think 
the travels have added to that, starting when he was a child, you know, he was mm-hmm. often dealing with the unexpected. Right. And so the unexpected is something that's unexpected is what's expected, I guess. I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> right. But, uh, and he grasps it and he uses it. And he's very generous. He's a good teacher. I've seen him, you know, giving classes and speaking to younger people. And I think that's important to him. I think he, you know, he has several grandchildren. And so he's very conscious of the importance of having the younger generation be broad in what they're interested in and how you help them to be that way. Mm-hmm. So the 1963 March on Washington was, of course, important to him personally, but also in his beginning as a photographer, he was only 14 in 1963. Right. Can you talk about what he told you about that experience and about the wonderful photographs he made of that, which, and that was a handheld camera and obviously commercially produced prints at that time. Those were not prints that he went in the dark room and printed. Right. Well, he went with his mother to the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'd ever seen such a large crowd of people before and and, an integrated crowd of people. He couldn't get too close to the speakers. So he stood where he could and took the photographs he was able to take. But What's interesting to me is the way much of what happens in those photographs kind of continues, you know, the attention to people and their activities. I think he has a very strong compositional sense, which I think grows out of, I think, some of his studies with Jack Witten, some of his basically living with Bearden, who was very, very concerned with issues of composition, Mm -hmm. Um, filling the surface, I think. With Frank, he really wants wherever you look on a surface, uh, you you see something that you want to look at. And I mm-hmm. I think intuitively he did that as as a young boy at the at the March on Washington. But that was of course the start of the you know the the whole notion of seeking African American roots and locating African-American subjects and and lives. I mean, one of the things I learned in the course of doing the exhibition is there's an extraordinary photograph of three Klansmen taken in Jackson, Mississippi. And I just thought he happened to be there the day and saw the Klansmen were there. Well, that wasn't it at all. He was heading east to Memphis. I forget where from. It doesn't matter. And he saw, as he passed through Jackson, there was going to be a Klan march there the next week. So he went on to Memphis and then came back to Jackson a week later because he wanted to see that Klan march. You know, it's a staggering photograph. It is. You're right on top of these horrible people. Right. There he is. So he wants to see the beauty in the world. I think he's very much of a yay-sayer, but he's not a yay-sayer who doesn't acknowledge that there's a lot to say nay about. Right. He's he's broad in that sense, but he's certainly looking for the beauty in the culture, whatever culture it is. I think he believes in universality in many aspects. I think he believes that, you know, what, what brings us together is much greater than what tears us apart if we let it function in a way that allows that to happen. So I think the book, in, in that sense, is very, and the show, are very important at this moment in time when there's so much conflict in every aspect of 
the world culture and the country's culture and the city's culture. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that adds greatly to the importance of the book and the, the range of what he's looking at and thinking about and the sense of detail and the sense of composition. But it all started with the March on Washington. His stepfather had a a piece of photographic equipment that was on a shelf in the bed where he stayed. And he was a slide taker. So he was kind of aware of photography. And he was close to the family that did photography for the Chicago Defender. And Mm -hmm. learned a lot about photography that way by seeing black and white photographs. He was kind of used to seeing photographs from, you know, drugstore photographs. Right. He saw this very other kind of photograph, which introduced him. And he he worked on several films, both as a still photographer and as an assistant in the action photography. He worked for many organizations in New York doing photography of events and photography of uh, openings and his documentation of much that went on in the Black cultural world. He was the first uh, artist in residence in photography at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and he did much of their photography for many years. And one of the essays in the book is by Mary Schmidt Campbell, who knows Frank since she was the director at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and she's you know, been the cultural commissioner of New York and the president of Spelman College and done so many things since then, but stayed in touch with Frank. There's very much the sense that he's in touch with people from throughout his life. And that's part of his getting to know and experiencing people, which is, I think, comes out in his photographs of people. It does. And I think it even comes out in his photographs where people are absent. But there are those interiors because there's still the story in those photographs. And the story is about a humanity that's in those photographs. I think about the interiors post-Katrina, the interiors that he discovered. You can't look at those and not think about the people who inhabited those spaces, even though the people are absent from the photographs themselves. Exactly. Um, so it's always there. It's always there yeah, in his, in his pictures. Yeah. 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 The human element is what it's about one way or another. No, it's very true. And I love the combination of black and white photography and color photography. Mm-hmm. He's done color photography from the very beginning of his career, but it was very expensive to produce until digital came into um, sure. the world. So there are not many printed color photographs from the early years. And he still takes black and white photographs very much as he's taking digital color. Mm-hmm. He's still interested in every aspect of photography. I think that's another thing that happens that his interests, both technically and in terms of subject, just get layered and more complex and more dense, that he doesn't let go of anything. He just adds to it. So the stories become more complex and complicated and the the structures become more complex and complicated and the metaphors become more complex and complicated. He Mm -hmm. he keeps adding to his knowledge and his interests. And for me, that's one of the things that I I never get tired of looking at a Frank Stewart photograph. Right. They, They stay with me. I think about them. I've lived with some and some I've lived with my bad computer printouts that he may send me and (laughs) I live with them too. And they 
they hold an important place in the, in the world. So I hope anybody who sees the book also manages to see the exhibition because, of course, I think the book's very beautiful, but the real thing is different than a photograph of the thing. It is. And so did the two of you or did anyone else collaborate on the selection of images in the exhibition? Well, Fred Moten was co-curator of the exhibition. And Frank and I, of course, discussed it. At one point, the exhibition was larger and there are many more photographs in the book than there are in the exhibition. Ah. We had to cut back on the size of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. And so many, and, and the, it's, the book's laid out with the logic that works in the exhibition are combined within certain texts and not within other texts and works not in the exhibition or in sort of portfolio format after that. And, and it's always interesting to have conversations with artists about what works they do or don't want in the show. In fact, they've probably been among some of the most interesting conversations I've had with all artists over my life because they are able to convince me why something that I didn't think was as important is more important than I thought it was. And there are also times when I can and have convinced them that their personal connection to a work is modifying their abstract judgment. And that something that they love to have in the work may in, in a show may fit less in the show, but they love the work. Well, I mean, that's true with the curator too, but I've taught, I mean, I had to take many, many works that I absolutely love out of the show or not get them in the show in the first place because, you know, I mean, this is a, a hundred photographs out of thousands and thousands and thousands. Right. So and hard. Making that selection is really difficult and Mm -hmm. more difficult with a photographer, I think, than with any other artist I've ever worked with, because there are so many negatives. Mm -hmm. uh, The the numbers of images to be considered is extraordinary by comparison. And did he need to make new prints for the exhibition or were most things already extant? Some things were new prints. Many of them are in other collections, so mm-hmm. that they're excellent. And and some are works that he hadn't printed before, and so they were printed for the first time. Mm-hmm. One of the opportunities of COVID was it gave him time to go through negatives that he had never had time sure. to go through. You know, you shoot all these images, and then you go on the road again. Right, and and, and, and you don't get around to making the prints necessarily. That's interesting. So, so that's been... That's been, I think, an advantage of COVID to, mm-hmm. uh, to his work and to his thinking about his work. He's he's done um, several books related to jazz at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a wonderful book on barbecue around the United States. And so each of these subjects is important to him. And it's wonderful to talk about how and why. And sometimes his thinking about events is absolutely colored by the people who were involved. And sometimes he doesn't know who the people are who are involved. And so each of them has a different way of being forceful in the work overall. Mm-hmm. He's a member of Kamoinga, which is the group of African-American photographers in New York who were very much about um, African-American life. I think his use of color and his use of around the world and cultures that are not 
connected to African-American life is something that singles him out from many other photographers of his generation or previous or some that are younger than him as well. Mm -hmm. It's it's that peripatetic nature that has done well by his art, I think. It's inclusive of so many ideas and so many cultures and so much about him personally, but also about just, you know, the world, this sort of universal humanity, like we were talking about. I just want to read one little passage from something that he says to you in the interview, because I think it really speaks to this simple and straightforward human approach he has to his work, but also a much higher ideal of what he thinks about art. And he said, the thing is, and this is what I tell all my students, you're not making art for people you don't like. You're making art for yourself and the strangers that like it, whatever time or place they're living in now, and somebody 50 years from now in China or Russia, as well as New York or Savannah. Art is a universal language. It's like math. Two plus two is four at the beginning of the century. It's four at the end of the century. Great art is going to be great art whenever it's made, by whomever it's made. To think about it any other way is insulting to the art. People come to art from the sum of their own experience. You come to it with the sum of your experience by making it. The people who look at it come to it with the sum of their experience, to appreciate it or not. And he goes on. Well, of course, I love that. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, that's probably one of the things we have in common is that belief that it's not to be siloed, it's to be spread around. And it and it does bring us together. It's one of the things that is so important now. And of course, the people who say, well, they cut art first because art's dangerous. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is an interesting idea, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important exhibition for people to see in Washington in June and then when it travels to Naples or to Savannah, and if not, to see this book, because I think it not only talks about Frank Stewart, but it talks a lot about us and about life and about art. So it's a beautiful book and congratulations. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you like it so much. It's really great. And it's always lovely to talk to you. I know. Ruth, I'm still learning from you all these years later. (laughs) It's really true. That's a very sweet compliment. No, it's really true. And for our listeners, you can purchase Frank Stewart Nexus at Rizzoli.com or on Amazon. You can also click on the links in our show notes to find out where to buy the book. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Reading the Art World to hear other episodes in the series featuring conversations with authors of great art books. Our podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Megan Fox Kelly Art Advisory and our services, visit our website and subscribe to our news posts at meganfoxkelly.com. From all of us at Megan Fox Kelly Art Advisory, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.